0: Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Ben Anderson of the Children's Defense Fund, who assesses the importance of the expansion of the Child Tax Credit in the American Rescue Plan and the fight now underway to make that expansion permanent. Philip Gregory, co-lead counsel in the Our Children's Trust lawsuit, who talks about a new strategy in the case that seeks to hold lawmakers accountable for the harm caused by climate change to young people and future generations. And Tim Judson, executive director of the Nuclear Information and Resource Service, who examines the current status of the Fukushima nuclear disaster on the 10th anniversary of the earthquake and tsunami that struck Japan in March 2011. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: In late February, China's Communist Party launched a major anti corruption purge of its domestic security services. State controlled media have described it as the most far reaching campaign since the late 1990s within the domestic security system, which includes the police, the secret police, the judiciary, and prisons. When Xi Jinping came into power in 2012, he launched a tough anti-corruption crusade, resulting in hundreds of thousands of officials being punished. One of those targeted was Zhou Yongkang, who had overseen the entire law enforcement apparatus. In 2015, he was sentenced to life in prison for graft and theft of state secrets. The anti-corruption campaign may benefit Xi's political ambitions. Late next year, he will preside over the Party Congress, which occurs every five years. Normally, he would be expected to step down at this event, having served as General Secretary for a decade. But Xi shows no intention of doing so. The contrast between China's successful control of the coronavirus and the West's botched response may have strengthened his hand. But The Economist magazine observes... By tightening his grip on the security forces, he can be even more certain that no one will dare oppose his continuation in power. The U.S. Inspector General for Afghanistan Development Aid reports several billion dollars were wasted through widespread fraud and abuse, but generated little outrage on Capitol Hill. Included was $549 million for 20 Italian-made cargo planes that did not work and were eventually sold for scrap. According to Foreign Policy magazine, the case was referred to the Justice Department for prosecution, but no action was taken. Since 2008, $2.4 billion remained unspent or in assets unused, abandoned, or destroyed. Only $1.2 billion under review was spent as intended. The report concludes that massive corruption in Afghan development projects remains a major security threat to the Afghan government as it seeks a peace deal with the Taliban. U.S. Congressman Stephen Lynch, chairman of the House Oversight Committee on National Security, observed, The level of corruption in Afghanistan is just incredible. It's as big a threat as the Taliban. Progressives swept early March elections for leadership positions inside Nevada's Democratic Party. Almost immediately, Party Executive Director Alana Mounts and the rest of the staff, close to former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, quit. Prior to the election, the party had transferred $450,000 to the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. Jennifer Whitmer, chairwoman of the Clark County Democratic Party, won the race to lead Nevada's Democrats, an important early state, in presidential primaries. Many of the new progressive party leaders are members of Democratic Socialists of America. The dispute between progressives and Harry Reid loyalists goes back to the 2016 primary when Reid backed Hillary Clinton in a fight with Bernie Sanders to win the Nevada caucus. During the 2020 presidential caucus, which Sanders won, progressives registered thousands of Latinx voters and DSA chapters gained strength within the state party. But instead of finding a way to work with the progressive newcomers, the Reed machine is setting up an independent political apparatus that will now compete with the state party for funding and influence. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo.
0: The $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan one of the largest stimulus bills in U.S. history, is best known for providing $1,400 checks for millions of Americans. The package allocates funds in direct response to the widespread economic hardship triggered by the coronavirus pandemic, while also addressing long-standing social, health, and financial challenges that were exacerbated by the health crisis. The relief legislation includes $350 billion in long-sought assistance to state and local governments, which have seen their budgets depleted by the pandemic. Additionally, the bill earmarks $31 billion to support Native American tribes in housing, education, health care, and infrastructure. $5 billion will also go toward black farmers for agricultural grants, debt relief, education, and training. Some observers have compared the rescue plan to Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal, and Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs because the bill also temporarily expands the child tax credit from $2,000 per child to as high as $3,600 for the 2021 tax year, which is expected to cut the number of Americans living in poverty by one-third and reduce child poverty by almost half. Your reporter spoke with Ben Anderson, Director of Health Policy at the Children's Defense Fund, who assesses the importance of expanding the child tax credit and the fight now underway to make that expansion permanent.
2: This is really a, a massive down payment uh, on, on cutting child poverty in the U.S. For folks who have children are probably uh, familiar uh, with the child tax credit, probably get questions from a, an accountant or if you get assistance in, in doing your taxes, it's, it's something that comes up in those discussions. But it's it's a it's a credit uh, that's that's available to families with uh, children under the age of 18. Uh, the recent changes increase uh, that credit to $3,600 per child for children under the age of six, and $3,000 per child for children uh, ages six to 17. Uh, and what's unique about this particular change is uh, there's a provision that will also make the credit available. In monthly installment payments. So with with most tax credits, uh, you, you know you have to wait till uh, the following year uh, to claim the credit for the previous tax year. With this provision, uh, those payments will begin in July and uh, will be issued monthly for a year. Now I I, I noted that this is really you know a, a down payment uh, on cutting child poverty, and and that's because of that expiration date. This is. Um, not something that's permanent at this point, and of course, something that we're we're very interested in being through uh, to to make it permanent.
0: Could you talk a little bit about the uh, the difference or the overlap in the earned income tax credit that a lot of families benefit from?
2: Sure. Uh, so the, the the child tax credit uh, is is really uh, focused on whether or not uh, you. Uh, have children, and it's available to families who are also uh, middle income and, and and upper middle income. The earned income tax credit, uh, on the other hand, which is also available uh, to to many families with children, and if you you have children, it it uh, impacts your eligibility. But it's. The earned income tax credit is only available for uh, lower income uh, families. So the difference with the child tax credit is it's, it's, it's more expansive uh, in, in a number of ways.
0: Thanks for that, Ben. One thing I think that's important to talk about is beyond the individual families that will benefit from this increased tax credit is the benefit to the country as a whole. Maybe you could speak to that. Poverty is not an isolated problem. If there are families that are poor in a community, it really has a ripple effect, does it not, uh, across their city, state, and the country?
2: Ab- absolutely. Letting millions of children live in poverty uh, is, is actually quite expensive to society. We see uh, increased costs in a variety of systems, from education to health care. Uh, children who live in in poverty... Uh, are often, you know, they, they have a, a, they struggle more uh, in, in school uh, on average. They sometimes will struggle to, to get into college, uh, less likely to succeed uh, later in life. And all of these things come with a cost that really adds up. You know, those costs can be avoided and completely offset by a- alleviating the problem, um, by alleviating uh, the issue of child poverty from the beginning.
0: There's really now a growing coalition of groups in the federal legislature and across the country that want to make the the expansion of the child tax credit permanent, not just one year. And there's a lot of folks who believe once this tax credit's in place, it's going to be hard to remove. But we know there are a lot of conservative politicians, Republicans in Congress that uh, have always opposed these types of programs.
2: Yes, that's, that's right. You know, I, I, th- I think it's unfortunate that, that an issue like child poverty can sometimes have a tendency to, uh, to become partisan because it's, it's not a partisan issue, right? There are poor kids in blue states and red states alike, and uh, the impacts are, are just the same.
0: What is your organization doing to organize support to make these child tax credit changes permanent? I imagine there's a larger coalition that's also at work right now to try and make those changes permanent.
2: Yes, that's right. you know we we have partners uh in d c uh, as well as uh states across the country that are are focused on these issues. We focus on raising up the 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 stories and the the needs of uh, children who uh, are impacted by these these issues every day. So we talk to uh, anybody and, and everyone, anybody who uh, will listen to us uh, about it and organize folks who are interested to, you know, make their voices heard on the issue, reach out to their uh, elected officials, tell them, um, you know, this, this is something that absolutely needs to be continued uh, and, and should not expire. And so uh, I expect that you'll hear more from us. Uh, on that issue in the coming months.
0: That was Ben Anderson, Director of Health Policy at the Children's Defense Fund. Learn more about the campaign underway to make the expansion of the child tax credit permanent by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In 2015, attorneys for Our Children's Trust filed a lawsuit in federal court on behalf of 21 youth plaintiffs, then 9 to 18 years old. The landmark Juliana v. United States case sought a ruling that would require the federal government to design and implement a climate recovery plan, among other issues. The case bounced back and forth from the district level to the appellate court and then to the U.S. Supreme Court, which sent it back to the Ninth District Court of Appeals. An unfavorable ruling there in 2020 caused the attorneys and youth plaintiffs to come up with a different strategy. Attorneys in the case against the federal government filed a motion to amend the original complaint, seeking a ruling that the nation's fossil fuel-based energy system is unconstitutional. Lawyers representing the plaintiffs, now ages 13 to 24, said such a court finding would hold current and future lawmakers accountable for protecting the rights of youth. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Philip Gregory, co-lead counsel on the case with Our Children's Trust. Here he talks about the latest developments in the case and his hopes for a speedy
3: resolution. When we filed our original complaint back in 2015, part of what we requested was for the court to order the government to develop and implement a climate recovery plan based on the scientific evidence. Now that wasn't the only relief we requested. We requested a lot of other things, but that was one thing that we requested that the court do. Now let's fast forward to January of 2020 when we received our opinion from the Federal Court of Appeals in the Ninth Circuit. And that opinion said, we the plaintiffs had proven that these youth plaintiffs were injured. And we had also shown that the injury based on the evidence was caused by the federal government. So we showed injury and we showed causation. But then the Ninth Circuit panel Rather than focus on all the relief we requested, it focused on our request for this plan and only focused on our request for this plan. And in its opinion, a federal court under Article 3 of the Constitution could not order such a plan. Now, that ruling we strongly disagree with, but we said Okay, let's go back to the district court and reaffirm that this other relief we'd requested, which is called declaratory relief, or we'd requested a declaratory judgment. Let's go back to the district court and reaffirm that that's the relief we want, and that the court, in its discretion, can order other relief but we want declaratory relief, which is to declare the right, declare both that we have a right to a climate system capable of sustaining human life and also that the United States fossil fuel energy system is unconstitutional because as the evidence shows, it is injuring these youth plaintiffs. And because of those injuries, the federal government should not be able to injure citizens. That's a violation of the Constitution. It was a violation of the Constitution in Brown versus Board of Education. Numerous other Supreme Court cases where the federal government is injuring US citizens and the court declared the government as a result of that declaration, stopped. And that's what we hope to do in the trial court in our new amended complaint in Juliana.
1: If you get the ruling that you want, it would require the government to take steps to basically end the extraction and burning of fossil fuels?
3: The short answer is yes. The longer answer is what's going on Is the government is harming citizens and we want a ruling that that conduct is unconstitutional and that the president's various departments and agencies would not knowingly engage in unconstitutional conduct. So it's very important to get that declaratory judgment and we believe the Biden administration would honor such a judicial declaration, but by, by Judge Aiken.
1: Whatever the ruling is, you're saying you hope that, that the Biden administration would not appeal it.
3: Right, because again, this administration during the election pledged that its climate policies would be for the benefit of youth. And if these energy systems declared to be unconstitutional, then it's time for the Biden administration to talk with their feet, as we all know, and, and uh, so they'd either go forward and continue to do unconstitutional acts despite the declaration, or they'd uh, realize that uh, the game is up and use that as a basis to stop the unconstitutional national fossil fuel energy system. That was Philip
0: Gregory co-lead counsel in the Our Children's Trust climate change lawsuit. Learn more about the case and its objectives by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Japan recently marked the 10th anniversary of the devastating earthquake and tsunami that struck the nation's northeast coast on March 11, 2011, which destroyed towns and villages and caused the triple meltdown of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant. More than 18,000 people died, and nearly half a million were displaced. Ten years later, more than 40,000 people are still unable to return home, most of them from the area around Fukushima where high levels of radiation still pose a hazard to human health. The work to decommission the wrecked Fukushima plant includes solving the problem of disposing of millions of gallons of radioactive contaminated water and recovering and safely isolating molten nuclear fuel and waste. According to some estimates, it may take up to another 30 to 60 years to fully decommission the plant. Your reporter spoke with Tim Judson executive director of the Nuclear Information and Resource Service, who examines the current status of the Fukushima nuclear disaster cleanup and the future of the nuclear industry around the world and in the U.S.
4: The proper way to think about, about this is not that it's the 10th anniversary of the Fukushima nuclear disaster happening. It's essentially sort of the, the 10th anniversary of, of that disaster starting because the reality is that the Fukushima disaster is still ongoing. And, you know, to this day, there's still uh, over 100 tons of contaminated water flowing through that reactor site, um, you know, and and into the environment every day. And um, and, and they're still struggling to be able to even contain the release of radiation uh, from these three melted down nuclear reactors.
0: And what about the region in terms of radiation that's affected the environment there as well as human health? What do we know about Mm -hmm. that? And, of course... That question has a lot to do with the transparency of the Japanese government and TEPCO, the operators of fukushima
4: the The reality is that the Japanese government um, has really tried to suppress you know any you know real monitoring or transparent information about about the state of the environment in the Fukushima area. and what they've done actually is in order to justify Trying to get people to move back into, you know, into the vicinity, they've actually raised what the the permissible um, standards for radiation exposure in the area. So now, what they say is that um, it's safe for people to move into areas where they would receive um, uh, 20 sieverts of radiation exposure a year, and that's actually uh, uh, 20 times what the what the safe standard for for you know for exposure to members of the public was before the disaster and is actually equivalent to uh the safety standards for workers working in nuclear power plants so essentially what the the japanese government has done is say that it's it's simply you know change sort of raised the bar for what it's okay for people to be exposed to in terms of radiation in order to justify allowing people or forcing people to move back into those communities. So what people in Fukushima have done, this is mothers who have children. They've had to undertake you know, doing their own radiation monitoring in, the, in their neighborhoods and in their communities in order to to try to provide as much protection as they can to their families. Um, so that's that's part of what's going on, as you have sort of grassroots, um, you know, community members um, having to take action to figure out how best to protect their families because the government really isn't
0: doing it. I have read that it may take 30 more years including the ten years that have just passed to actually effectively decommission those Fukushima nuclear reactors that melted down, the three of them.
4: That's probably that's probably the shortest amount of time that it's gonna take. Um, you know, since since the disaster happened, um Japan has sort of focused on a twenty fifty target date for completing, you know, the uh the, the the decommissioning and the cleanup of the site. Um but that's but that but that target keeps on becoming more and more untenable. Because of the complications that they're finding, and um, how, you know, in, 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 in how, how to actually perform um, the, the, the work that's needed, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of people who really feel that the estimate is probably going to be closer to 60 years um, that it'll take to clean it up. You know, probably 2070 at least, um, because they keep on running into problems that they didn't anticipate. Um, you know, like the fact that um, that they that they haven't really been able to figure out where most of the molten nuclear core material is, um, and they're finding it farther away from the reactor cavities than they expected.
0: 10 years after the Fukushima nuclear disaster, what is the status of the global nuclear industry as well as here in the United States?
4: The reality is that nuclear power globally is in decline, and in a pretty pretty significant decline. Um, You do have countries like Germany and Spain and Italy um, that have decided to phase out nuclear power entirely, and Germany is, is going ha- to have shut their last reactor in 2022. Uh, even in China, which is the only place where there is, you know, really significant, you know, construction happening in the last decade, um, even China's rate of rate of building reactors has slowed down and is not meeting the targets that were projected five years ago. Um, and that's in part because, you know, they're running into some problems with construction taking longer than expected. Um, but also because the Chinese are realizing, we we assume it's because it's, it's because the Chinese are realizing that the investment in renewables um, is you know is, is much more productive than spending on building new nuclear power plants, and they're having they're they're building their wind and solar at a much much faster clip than they are with with their nuclear construction, and um, and that's really where the best bet is financially. So, that, so then you have the rest of the world, uh, which includes the U.S., uh, where you know where nuclear power is you know it's not being phased out, but it's but it's certainly but it's definitely in decline, because what we have is you know a bunch of you know most most of the reactors in the world are over 30 years old now, and in the U.S. most of our reactors are over 40, and they're just becoming more and more expensive to operate um, as as they reach these advanced ages, so they're just not competitive, and they're they're becoming prohibitively expensive to maintain, and so you know in the U.S. we have you know, uh, ten reactors that have closed in the last in the last uh, six years, or seven years. Um, there's more. There's more that are, that are going to be closing. Uh, you know, by by 2025, and then we have going into 2030. Um, you know, a massive percentage of reactors in the U.S. are coming up to the end of their 60-year licenses. And so, you know, the the idea that um, that nuclear is going to be expanding anywhere in the world besides China in the near term is, you know, it's is, is not very realistic. Um, but in reality, you know, it, it, the, the industry is really declining worldwide
0: and in the U.S. That was Tim Judson, Executive Director of the Nuclear Information and Resource Service. Learn more about the Fukushima nuclear disaster cleanup effort by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WPPM in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, WRFN in Nashville, Tennessee, KOWA in Olympia, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mika Ta. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.